we have multiple faculty involved um, and that program is really robust and has support for multiple faculty from year to year. So we try to, uh, we're trying to do some targeted outreach this year. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of World Strides Inaugural Podcast, Changing Lives Through Education Abroad, a weekly series of conversations with international education's most interesting thought leaders, as well as discussions on emerging trends, best practices, and innovation happening in our field. I'm your host, Zach McInnes, Senior Director of Campus Partnerships with World Strides, and I'm so excited about this week's episode. Today, we're diving deep into the world of faculty-led study abroad. Specifically, we're going to be talking about the state of faculty-led in 2024. Short-term study abroad led by faculty has been growing for a couple of decades now, and that trend has, if anything, only accelerated as our field emerged from the pandemic. What trends are we seeing in faculty-led travel as we head into 2024? In what ways should we be thinking about these programs differently than perhaps we were five years ago? We'll be digging into those questions and more today. Now, joining us today is an esteemed guest who brings a wealth of knowledge and experience to the table in this area. Please allow me to introduce Morgan Morris Inamidet, uh, Director of Education Abroad at the University of South Carolina. We love Morgan. Morgan has been at USC since 2015 and was promoted to director in 2022. Morgan's background is in global health, safety, and security, and I so appreciate the health and safety lens she brings into her role as director. So, dear listeners, fasten your seatbelts and prepare to be enlightened as we delve deep into one of my very favorite quarters of international education faculty-led study abroad. Welcome, Morgan. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Zach. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, to begin, I would love for you to please give us an overview of your professional journey and your current role at the University of South Carolina. So, um, well, I'd always had an interest in international affairs. Um, for most of my college years, I thought my pathway would involve working in politics and for campaigns. So that's what I was studying. That's what I did all my internships in. My first you know, big person job role out of college was working on a presidential campaign and political operations. And as great of an experience as it was, one campaign was enough for me. I loved you know, how dynamic it was. I loved the mission-oriented work, but I wanted a better work-life balance. So it's funny that I ended up in international education, which never sleeps. But yeah, after that campaign experience, I, w- I was fortunate to get a job um, with the Justice Department in their Office of International Affairs. So left my, my hometown in South Carolina, moved up to D.C. Um, and after a few years of that, I told I made the mistake, not a mistake, but I shared with my mom that I was thinking about, you know, in the very early stages of thinking about a move back home to South Carolina to be closer to my family. As any good mom does, she immediately said, this is happening. I'm going to make this happen. So she went out and started looking for job opportunities for me that would keep me within the international affairs realm that I really, you know, wanted to be in, um, but would, would be closer to home. So Within a week, she saw the job that I eventually ended up getting at USC, which was as USC's first assistant director for global health, safety, and security. Um, so I applied for that, ended up uh, getting it, which was great, um, and started my career in international ed. But it was kind of a, a literal end of the beginning of return home. I, I studied abroad um, three times in college, had such you know transformative 
experiences, thought at the time, oh, that would be a really cool job, but I don't even think I fully grasped the number of opportunities within our field. Um, so I've been rocking and rolling since 2015 international. I love that. Thank you for sharing. You know, your mom should talk to my mom because I regularly get things from her uh, trying to entice me to move back to my home state of Texas. So, uh, so shout out to the moms out there who are listening. Uh, you know, today though, you know, we're, we're diving deep into the topic of faculty-led and custom programs. Morgan, how would you describe the state of faculty-led as we look towards 2024? And what are the driving forces of the movement we are seeing and what is new if we were to compare 2024 to perhaps five years ago? Well, like you said, I mean, we all know that faculty-led was accelerating year over year for, for over a decade now. So I don't think it's a surprise that that was the first model of programming that really rebounded quickly coming out of the peak of the pandemic. Um, but when I think back to the motivations for students and faculty who are engaging in this type of program, I think maybe that's what's changed a little bit since 2019. For our students who are you know, sophomores or, or juniors, they were experiencing the peak of the pandemic in their latter high school years when most of their predecessors would have had a little more independence, you know, be looking to um, spend a lot of time with their friends because they could drive in most cases and have a little more separation from family. Our students today didn't have that. So I think they're really grasping for connection with their peers. They're really grasping for um, those meaningful experiences that that maybe they missed out on because they, they didn't get a prom senior year like the rest of us did who, who graduated high school a little bit earlier. Um, so I think that's a really attractive part of faculty-led programming. They get that cohort experience. They get to go with their friends. Or even if they don't know anyone who's going, they at least have the common ground of going with fellow students from their universities um, and a faculty member that that they already know, or they've at least seen on campus. Um, so I think that's that's perhaps the, the key difference is the motivation has changed a little bit. That's really interesting. You know, you know, you know, you and I both know that there's a certain level of comfort, you know, in going on a on a shorter program with students that they with peers that they may know with a faculty they're comfortable with, compared to embarking on a an ISA semester in Spain, for example. So that's really interesting. Well said. Our field is full of professionals that care deeply about students the universities they serve, and providing opportunities to the leaders of tomorrow. What's trending in faculty-led travel, and how can our listeners stay ahead of the curve? We relaunched our faculty-led programming in the summer of 22, I would say. So we've now gone through um, two you know, peak cycles of sending a lot of faculty-led programs out. And a common theme that has emerged is our leaders are saying they've, they're have they finding that students need more time to recharge. Um, so I think that's a bit of a change in trend compared to the pre-pandemic when we wanted our students to get as absolutely most out of this experience as we could. So our approach was let's jam pack our itineraries, let's keep them moving, let's keep quote unquote, give them less time to find trouble. Um, and now we've, we've noticed that students really need more time to recharge. I think this generation of students that um, went through a few years of virtual learning. They were more in control of their daily schedules than maybe you or I were during our high school and college years. Um, so they really need a little bit more time for individual reflection, individual exploration. 
Um, so that's a bit of a, a change in trend and, and something that we're trying to incorporate a little more um, explicitly in our itineraries is we're going to keep you busy in the morning. It'll be a, a big group activity, but then there might be um, you know, an hour or two in the afternoon to, to really individually collect yourselves and, and um, do what you need to do to, to keep healthy and, and maintain your mental health. Um, while abroad on this very short intensive experience. Um, so that's one change. I think the other change is, um, at least at USC, where we've seen, um, and the field has seen this as well, a big shift back towards programming in traditional destinations. We were doing a lot of work um, and finding some success pre-pandemic with encouraging our students to think about some locations that maybe they didn't grow up hearing about as much or um, be a little more open to to the world. Um, and we've seen the pandemic, I think, reverse some of that work. We're certainly, you know, talking with our faculty, encouraging them and trying to be a good source of support for them to offer programs in locations outside of Western Europe, um, because our theory is that students will, will find those locations more accessible if they have that cohort experience with a parents that they know. So um, we're thinking about our scholarship offerings, thinking about some incentives um, for how we can, um, you know, pick up that work that we were doing before the pandemic of um, encouraging students to think as lovely as Western Europe is. We all love Florence, but maybe yes. not that much. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I think what you said about the the intentionality behind providing free time to students, I, I want to dig into that a little bit more because I think it's really important. How can we be intentional about structured free time? One thing that we're doing is, um, like I said, you know, we're being really, um, not that we were never thoughtful about our itineraries, but I think we're being even more thoughtful about um, the level of activities that we're, we're packing in. Um, so like I mentioned, we uh, might start early, you know, in the day, just like always, but wrap up our activities by 3 or 4 p.m. instead of 8 p.m. But during those free blocks of time, I've seen um, some of our faculty do some cool things um, surrounding their academic assignments. So they might give students the option uh, between five different activities and students have to participate in one of those um, and write a reflection paper or um, have some other type of class project that you know, best puts students in the driving seat, still empowers them a little bit to um, have the confidence to go out and, and navigate some of these places on a more individual level, obviously with a big safety net um, of the faculty member and our great um, support providers like one strides, but a little bit more, you know, empowerment for the student to to drive their own adventure um, and come back and reflect on it in a more academic setting. I think it's one kind of cool way to carve out time. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. You know, here at World Strides, faculty-led programming was among the first of our of our options to rebound after the pandemic. And we've seen a tremendous growth uh, in interest and programs to date. How has the comeback been at USC in particular? And what can you extrapolate that, to apply to the field at large? Sure. Um, similar to World Strides, that is the, the sector of um, the model of education abroad that has come back most strongly. Last year, you know, our, our first full quote-unquote normal academic year, um, about close to 50% of our students were engaging with short-term faculty-led programming. Prior to the pandemic, it was, it was more of a third um, of our study abroad population was in this particular model like the rest of the field, like Wall Strides, um, that there's certainly a, a strong level of attraction. 
um, from our students who are looking for these short-term pregnancy-led options. Um, and like we've been talking about, I think one reason for that is they're really drawn to the structure um, and the the high support of a of a program that is being operated by the university that they know that they are familiar with. Um, they want that cohort type of experience. They want to go with um, some folks that they already know or at least people that they've seen around campus. Um, so that's a big a big draw. Um, and I think another part of it is at least at USC, our faculty led programs are only short term. We've talked about you know maybe trying to. Um, do more semester long at some point. Uh, but for our students who, um, I think we, you know, we might cycle out of this, but for our students who had a very abnormal first year experience during their you know, college years, they are hesitant to leave for a full semester. They want a few years of, of what it feels like to be a normal USC student, going to football games, hanging out on the horseshoe. And so they, they like that short-term nature or over the summer because they feel like I'm not going to miss out on my um, normal school experience, I can use this to supplement. Faculty-led travel is, is so special for so many reasons. Uh, and, the, and the fact that educators can truly have a hand in the authorship of and design of a program is not least among them. What else would you add about current motivations you are seeing for faculty to undertake this sort of professional travel? Yeah, I think um, unsurprisingly, you know, similar to students who went through a few years of virtual learning, that type of learning environment is really difficult for our faculty who really value the relationships that they get to build in the classroom or out of the classroom with students. And so I think um, that's a huge motivation, you know, for for faculty leaders. This is often a labor of love. Um, they do a ton of work and invest so much of their um, energy that they could be spending on their own research. And they're at a big R1 like USC or so this is this is really uh, a passion project for many of them, and they, the main motivation that I hear is wanting to deliver a compelling experience for their students and give them an experience that they're not going to be able to um, to get just from a classroom. So um, being able to supplement the academic content with these field experiences is a huge um, motivation. At USC, we're also looking to create more overlap between what our faculty are doing internationally and what our students are doing internationally. Um, so we're trying to offer some opportunities for our faculty to get more engaged with with research that they could do internationally. Obviously, we already have a lot of researchers who have great international collaborations, but we're trying to offer more support and more, I want to say structure, but more um, incentives for our faculty um, to engage, and our hope is by doing that, we'll eventually be able to incorporate more of our students in that work as well. What advice would you give, Morgan, to a faculty member who may be new in their role and hasn't led a program abroad before? What would your advice be if they want to get started in this work? My you know, first piece of advice would be finding some a strong partner to help facilitate that experience. Um, our faculty are obviously experts in their academic content. Um, they have a strong idea of what activities are going to help them teach the, the content that they need to deliver. Uh, but most faculty don't have the resources and don't have the time, frankly, to um, to vet accommodations for their students that are going to be, um, that are really going to be a safe and great place for their students to live while they're pursuing this intensive program. Um, that 24-7 risk management piece that 
our on-site partners can provide is, I think, a huge source of comfort for our faculty. Um, so that would be my, my first piece of advice it's, um, to how it's steer faculty um, is to find some good support partners. And then I also, you know, really try to encourage them to um, and help them get departmental buy-in. What's sad for us is when we have a really strong program that students are really drawn to and then that faculty member retires or moves um, on to another opportunity in that program withers away. So it's great when we have um, a culture of faculty-led ed abroad within the department um, and we have multiple faculty involved um, and that program is really robust and um, has support for multiple faculty from year to year. So we try to, uh, we're trying to do some targeted outreach this year to departments who have not been involved in education abroad ever or faculty member moved on during COVID and we've kind of lost that strong connection with that department um, to create more of that culture. What advice would you have for, for faculty members who are running their first program um, but unsure about how to recruit students? We actually just did a marketing workshop for mm-hmm. our new faculty leaders this oh, last I love that. week. Part of it was, you know, similar to what we professionals see at conferences all the time is understanding the audience, you know, understanding what students are looking for out of these experiences, understanding where students are hanging out, where they're getting their information. Um, So we've done um, some good templates for creating social media graphics and um, creating compelling not necessarily actual flyers because we're um, you know, trying to be sustainable and do less printing, um, but creating digital flyers that have the key information. Of course, have a QR code so they could get more information, but not overwhelming them with a, a five-page information pamphlet. And we know that um, for our audience, that's not going to be compelling. But what we really encourage faculty to do is um, create that you know connection. So we encourage our faculty to um, ask their colleagues if they can, you know, have five minutes of their class and present on this program, um, really be visible to students. I think um, for faculty members who are well-known students, they're involved with, with student activities, um, those are the ones who have no problem recruiting because students want that experience with that faculty member. I love that you you did a marketing workshop workshop for your faculty leaders. It sounds like you you and your team are really providing them with a toolkit in order to be successful in this work. So I really love that. Yeah, yeah, we have a great team um, and a, a wizard of a marketing manager who we charter. So we're, we're lucky to have both. I follow the Instagram accounts. You guys do a great job. Thank you, uh, Thank you on behalf of the team. So yeah. <laughs> Amy and the team. You know, all of our listeners today, Morgan, understand the vital importance of study abroad and why we do what we do, right? But thinking about faculty-led program leaders, students, and universities as a whole, what would you understand as outcomes for faculty-led study abroad? Why is this important? You know, the first and the most important is what students get out of it. You know, so we as as practitioners are very familiar with um, how transformational these experiences can be. I think most people who work in this field were fortunate enough to have an opportunity that completely put us on a new course. So that's what we're we're hoping to deliver for students. For faculty-led programming in particular, I really hope that it's helping us um, with our goal of creating more access to education abroad. We work with with students who have family responsibilities that would not allow them to 
study abroad for a full semester, but a week or two week long faculty led program is going to be more accessible. So I really hope that when we're doing this work, that that is the outcomes that we're including access to our programming and to these transformational experiences. And then of course, I think faculty led programming is a great way to internationalize your campus to we love when we have faculty who are both um, seasoned travelers and faculty who are um, maybe serving as a program assistant who haven't had um, as many of their own international experiences but are able to have that same type of transformational experience that the students get and come back and get more engaged with our internationalization efforts on campus the faculty led programming can be one of the first gateways into international work on campus um, because who doesn't like to, I mean, I know people do, but most people love to travel and and want to have these types of experiences. So our hope is that you know they'll get interested in our our broader work and then come back and start thinking about advising students who are applying for a Gilman scholarship or working more with our our great international student community on campus and engaging more with them to make them feel at home um, at USC. So, so that's those are our three primary. Very well said. Thank you for sharing that. Now, and I want to give you an opportunity, Morgan, to to spotlight some of the work that you're all you all are doing at USC in this arena. Is there a program that has you particularly excited? Yeah, well, there is one from our College of Information and Communications. Um, this will be the third year that it's running this upcoming summer. Um, but why I'm really excited about it, and I think it's innovative, is um, typically the model for our summer programming at USC, like many schools, is students pay a program fee that covers um, their on-site costs, and they also have to pay tuition um, at the part-time rate for the three credits, typically, that they're earning as part of this program. And our College of Information and Communications, um, the dean and uh, the faculty leader, Scott Farron, who's an amazing advocate for, for education abroad, really wanted to get more students involved and engaged and create more access to the short-term program. So they've developed a month-long program in Spain, but the students do not have to pay a program fee. They pay their tuition and the college is using um, that tuition revenue to subsidize the um, the onsite cost. And so you know, the students are getting um, a month-long experience at less than half of the average cost for our students. Um, so, so that's really exciting to me. I hope um, you know, they're motivating other colleges and other colleges on campus will start to think more about that model. We know that global education offices come in all shapes and sizes, don't we? What advice would you give to any professional in our field or office team looking to up their custom program game? Uh, well, what's worked well for us is having an individual staff member who's dedicated specifically to our faculty-led programming and faculty initiatives. Um, you know, ten years ago, when I you know can look at our archive of old office org charts, you know, this work was was more divided among a few people, um, and sometimes that's the only way to do it. Um, the structure of the office. Uh, but I do think it helps to have a primary point of contact where a, a team um, where faculty leaders know that they can get their questions answered, that they can go to for support. I think that's helpful because similar to students, our faculty, you know, like that relationship building of this program. So they have one point of contact that they um, have time to build a relationship with. I think um, that that's really effective. The other thing is at USC, our faculty-led programming is uh, relatively decentralized. 
I don't necessarily think that's the best bottle. That's just the bottle that's existed at USC for a long time. Um, so our office you know, offers support, offers um, risk management protocols that all of our faculty-led programs have to um, comply with. All students have to be registered with us, but the, uh, the budgets and marketing is often really led by the colleges that are sponsoring that program. Um, so if you're in a, an institution that has a similar model, I would say offering as many templates as possible is helpful. You know, a template budget spreadsheet, a template purchase order that we have to um, put together to um, pay our great um, on-site supporters. Um, great, you know, like I said, social media graphic templates, that sort of thing. Um, because I always have to, to keep in the back of my head, this is a labor of love for our faculty leaders. They are under a lot of other pressures to complete their research, to get their books published, um, to get some um, articles in a respected journal. So as much as um, we can provide for them and, and not make them reinvent the wheel, is it's going to make this program a lot more effective and a lot more compelling. The art of the strategic template. That's yes, really interesting. Absolutely. I want to dig into program design a bit and what makes a travel course truly special. What are some hallmarks of this type of program done in an exemplary fashion? Maybe use this as an opportunity to point out the elephant in the room. Um, Short term programming. We know some people have an issue with um, because they worry that it's not as immersive as our longer term experiences. It doesn't allow for as high of an impact on the student as our students who were abroad for a full semester or a full academic year. So I would say a hallmark is carving out as many opportunities as possible for the students to um, not just travel as a, as a tourist, but to get a little sense of, of what it feels like to live in this location and understand it and on a deeper level than we might, you know, when we're traveling um, just for vacation or, or for fun. I do think, obviously, that has to be really thoughtful. I don't, you know, I'm certainly not holding up um, the idea that our students should just go out and do one day of community service and, you know, kind of dip in and have that parachute model of engaging with the community. But I think that's where it becomes really important to have strong on-site support who who does have a presence in that in that location year round, who can create opportunities for our students to engage with the community in an ethical and respectful way. So as an example, we have a, a winter term program in Peru that we um, run with World Strides. It's a it's an intensive two week long program. The students are traveling around Peru um, quite frequently. They visit four different sites, um, but one opportunity they have is to um, engage with the community who live on the islands in Lake Titicaca, which I think is a really valuable opportunity for um, for our students to, to get to know some of the people who live there and, and you know, make their lives in this location, um, even on a, a very short-term program. Shout out to World Strides in Peru. That's yes. where I did my study abroad once upon a time. Yes. Um, leaning in a bit here, uh, what are some other ways, Morgan, you've seen intentional partnerships be leveraged to really enhance learning outcomes to create programs that team with educational components and opportunities for student personal growth? Yeah, I think a great example is we have a, a long-running program over the month of May in Costa Rica, also with ISA. So shout out to ISA Costa Rica and their amazing team. But it's, let's see, we're going into the ninth year of that program and we've been fortunate to have continuous faculty um, some of whom have been teaching on that program for 
seven or eight years now. And what I think is is neat um, as an example is there's a course offered on that program on epidemiology. And because the the same faculty member has been teaching it year over year, they've developed um, a strong partnership with a care facility in Costa Rica, um, an assisted living and independent living facility. And they've really let that that facility dictate what support the students can offer. When I mean by that is the faculty member asks, what can our students do? You know, how can they be helpful to you? What's your need and how can um, we maybe help with that. And what they said, like a lot of nonprofits, is we don't have time to do robust data assessment. You know, we're, we're caregivers, we're on the first responders. We really need to be with our patients. That is not appropriate to have students engage with, with patients um, in this way, in, in the caregiving role. Um, but if you could bring some epidemiology students who can help um, with our data collection and our data assessment, that would be really helpful. So that's a long-running project now, and every year our students who are engaged with that program get the opportunity to participate um, in this in this data um, analysis project, which um, helps, most importantly, helps the facility figure out how to allocate their resources and meet the needs of their patients um, and their residents, but it also is giving this, the students an experimental learning opportunity um, to really sharpen their data analysis skills as they're pursuing their epidemiology degrees. It's really exciting. What speaks to your heart about this topic? I'll say it started just because I loved knowing what was going on in the world. Um, so when I started my my role at USC with the health and safety focus, I couldn't believe that I had a job. That part of my job was, you know, reading the news from so many different locations around the world. So, so that's what kept me interested from day to day. But what really is meaningful about the work, as you can imagine, is we all know we've had these transformational experiences and we have the, the opportunity to, to study abroad and um, live, live in a new place and um, all of the, the good things that that brought. Um, but I'm now very aware in a way that I probably was not as a student that I had a lot of privilege when I was um, getting that opportunity, you know, in terms of I, I wasn't thinking about asking for any accommodations. I wasn't going to a place where my identity was going to be questioned or pushed back on. And so now for our students who, who maybe do require a little more planning, you know, I, I just love being the source of support that can, obviously they know what they need. I, they don't need to, I don't need to tell them, here's what you need. But if they can tell me, here's what I need to, to thrive on this program, to be successful, can you help identify some resources? I get so much, yeah, a real sense of focus out of that because I know if I can help line up um, some resources for the student or um, help them, you know, find that sense of belonging among a great faculty-led program, um, then that's going to give so many more students the opportunity to, um, to have those types of transformational experiences that we were lucky enough to have. We know that supporting faculty-led travel can absorb a lot of the energy of a study abroad office. How can our practitioners who are listening today speak about the resources needed and the outcomes of faculty-led travel to other leaders and in the administration on their campus? For us, what has worked well is, um, and you know, this is good and bad, but always pointing out the numbers, right? So um, when I was recreating the our faculty-led coordinator position um, that had become vacant during the pandemic, I pointed out, you know, this is 
pre-pandemic, this was a third of our students who were engaging with this type of programming. We're only seeing more growth out of that now. It's closer to half of our students engaging with this type of programming. Um, so we absolutely need a dedicated staff member to lead us in um, our faculty-led initiatives. You know, numbers are, are huge for better or for worse. I know the um, the worst part of it is the number of students that you're sending out on a study abroad opportunity is not necessarily capturing how many hours you spent with each of those students in advising and answering their questions and all of the students that you worked with who maybe decided to defer their program until next year or something like that. Um, so that's why I say for better or for worse, but for us, you know, the numbers were, um, are really the driving decision-making point for, for our leadership in terms of hiring. But I also think one of the biggest, some of the biggest champions can be your faculty leaders because of the nature of you know, our university structure. Faculty governance is huge. And so if we have our faculty leaders who say, I wish you could offer this, you know, as much as I love your office and I know y'all are all working so hard, you have a, a small team. And if you have a big team, you could offer this type of support and this type of programming for us. So I, when they tell me that, I say, well, please tell the faculty senate tell university leadership um, because, you know, I could say so much, but I have, I'm biased. I'm <laughs> uh, trying to grow my office. And when a faculty member is saying that who has um, the ear of other faculty leaders, um, then that can be, you know, a, a really a good source of advocacy for the team. I love what you said about, you know, working with faculty in that way. Uh, what are some other pro tips you have about approaching faculty as partners in this process. I think sometimes there is an inclination in our field to view faculty as adversaries when yeah. it comes to this type of work, but how can we how can we move towards true partnerships with faculty? And I'll be the first to admit, um, when I first started at USC, there were certainly some um, faculty members that came across as a little intimidating to me or a little bit scary. And so I, I avoided them, you know? I um, And sometimes they were the, the big challengers when I was in the middle of a training, they would be the ones raising our hand and saying, but what about this? And what about that? And what about that? And so that was, you know, uncomfortable to me as a, as a facilitator. And so I would just avoid them and hope they didn't show up at that particular workshop, you know. But as I've grown into my role and spent more time in the field, I think I've gained the confidence to stop avoiding those types of, of faculty who, who can be challenging to work with sometimes, but are always coming from a place of wanting to deliver the best experience they can for their students. So in that way, we've turned in some of our, I would not call them adversaries necessarily, but you know, our biggest challengers into really great champions just by shining a light on them. So um, I've had some of our, our faculty lead workshops for other faculty, which is really valuable because they understand how many other challenges faculty members are, are facing um, and how they can can best support and manage all of their different tasks and their different priorities with um, doing this type of work that does require you know a lot of a lot of passion and a lot of care and, and intentional thinking. So that's one, you know, just bringing them more into the fold. I love what you said about the the challenger to champion pipeline that yeah. you've created at, at USC. That's that's really in, intentional and very impressive work. Looking towards the the future now, Morgan. What needs and opportunities would you predict that we will continue to see in, in faculty-led? What's next? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to continue to expand and grow. So I think we, as practitioners, need to be all the more thoughtful about how we can help facilitate as 
transformational experience is possible in a short amount of time. Um, so at USC, we're again thinking about coming back to how can we incentivize students um, to engage in higher impact programming, even when they're doing short term. So we have a new scholarship um, that we're offering for students who are going to be living with a host family or um, with a local student on their study abroad program, even if it is short term. Um, if they're taking language outside of their um, dominant language, even on a short-term program, they can get um, a pretty sizable scholarship. Obviously, we have scholarships for um, traveling outside if you're studying abroad in a location outside of Western Europe. So revamping those a bit. And of course, our scholarships for financial needs students, they're always trying to grow that pot of money because we've certainly seen um, with inflation, the cost of of operating these programs has gone up, which means the cost for our students is going up as well. So as much as we can do to to help offset that cost is something that we always want to do. I think, you know, one thing we're doing is targeting departments who have a high number of students majoring in that discipline, um, but do not have any engagement with, with faculty at abroad right now. Um, so Dashi Young, who's our faculty-led coordinator, spent the summer identifying here the top 10 majors at USC who have a huge number of students um, that do not have a faculty-led program right now. And some of them are great opportunities for both our office and the college to partner together to offer a study abroad opportunity for students who would otherwise not be able to engage. You know, an example for us is, is nursing. It's a very lockstep major. Those students have a hard time leaving for um, for the full semester because they're working towards their nursing certification. Um, so we're trying to do more work with them and offer um, more short-term programs over spring break and winter session in the summer term. Um, so I think we're trying to be a little more intentional about the growth. Um, what I don't want to see is programs, um, one department offering 10 programs and they start to cannibalize each other. Yes, um, always the risk. Yeah, mm -hmm. Yes, we really want to see um, a broader representation across the university who are in the faculty I just love all the intentionality here. Thank you for sharing that, Morgan. And lastly, as we begin to wrap up here, I just have one more question for you, my friend. As we think about education abroad in 2024, what makes you hopeful? Oh my gosh, so much. You know, I'm having come through the pandemic in an international education office, like so many, I think the hardest thing was just losing that sense of purpose in your work you know for a year or a year and a half we were planning programs that everyone was pretty sure were not going to happen but we did not know what else to do so we just kept planning them um and that was really tough you know i mean on top of all of the challenges that our teams were having outside of work um related to the pandemic coming into work every day and not really feeling like the work you were doing was going to matter was going to um result in a student being positively impacted by your work was, I think, the most difficult thing, just losing that sense of purpose. So it's really exciting to me now that we're, you know, our numbers are pretty much back to where we were um, right before the pandemic, which is awesome. We have so our office is buzzing. Every time I walk in, there's a group of students chatting, waiting for advising. Sometimes they just come in to hang out, which I love. I, I think that that um, is a testament to the positive um, space that our team has created. So that, that's really exciting to me. Um, and like like I said, we're reaching out. We have more um, of a team structure to allow us to do more outreach, which is great because we can build um, better and deeper relationships with our faculty champions. 
maybe we we lost a bit of that during the pandemic when everyone was teleworking or just so focused on pandemic-related challenges that we didn't have time to pursue this work that um, we really enjoy. So that's been exciting to me. We've created in our cultivating some relationships with some uh, amazing new faculty that are either new to USC or um, new to education abroad. But I also value so much the faculty who came back, you know, who rolled with the punches and um, maybe got, had the horrible experience of having several programs canceled at the beginning of the pandemic. And then as we um, started coming out of the peak of it. So I think, you know, that their commitment to these experiences has just been completely reaffirmed in the last year or two once they've seen oh my goodness this is what we were working for i got to be on site with students again um and see how much they got out of these experiences so um so that's yeah really exciting well i can't imagine a better place to end things than right here morgan morris and abadette thank you so much it's been such a great conversation oh i really appreciate you having me zach it's been fun and to our listeners thank you for joining us for this episode of changing lives through education abroad I am your host, Zach McInnes, and please make sure to join us next week as we continue to explore topics around international education and exchange. Thank you to my spectacular World's Rights colleagues, Lindsay Kelchner and Sarah Kachuba, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Please subscribe to Changing Lives for Education Abroad on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And share with your friends and colleagues. Let's create life-changing moments together.